Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Steve Millendorf. Steve is a senior counsel in Foley's San Diego office with a practice focus on privacy and cybersecurity. In this discussion, Steve reflects on growing up in Long Island, New York, attending college at SUNY Stony Brook, and law school at the University of California, San Diego. But for Steve, the path to law school wasn't exactly a straight line, and that first, he spent over two decades as an engineer. So I get Steve to tell me about his prior life as an engineer, one in which he spent a lot of time focusing on microchip design. And I get him to talk about what it was that caused him to decide to go to law school and also what that transition to law school was like for him. And of course, we talked to Steve about why Foley and Lardner and his cybersecurity practice. And at the end, Steve gives some great advice about the importance of finding the practice area that best suits you. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve Millendorf. Steve Millendorf, welcome to the podcast. We're going to start how we always start, and I'm going to ask you to give your professional introduction. Okay. Uh, I'm Steve Millendorf. I'm a senior counsel at Foley and Lardner in our San Diego office. My practice is mostly privacy and cybersecurity and a bit of technology transactions as well. So as, as we normally do on this show, we're going to unpack all of that. But first, we have to start somewhat at the beginning before we can talk about, you know, how it is and why it is you can introduce yourself that way today. But let's start with, you know, where are you from? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in New York, started actually mostly in Brooklyn until I was about five or six. Uh, and then we moved out to the middle of Long Island in a, a town called North Babylon, which is famous for absolutely nothing. Um, and I was there um most of my my um, childhood life, I guess, um, went to went to school at Stony Brook, which is further out on Long Island. And I was there until I was uh, back. I, I lived on Long Island until I was 27, and then came out to San Diego to uh, start my second job. And we're going to talk more about that, but I want to dig into this a little bit. So I think you said it was North North Babylon. Was that the name of the town? That's correct. And when you say it was famous for nothing in particular, there wasn't even some random like world's biggest spoon or some like random celebrity that nobody cared about. A absolutely nothing. Um, I, I do have some friends who are in the entertainment industry who I'm sure will be thrilled that I'm, I'm uh, not mentioning them by name. For whatever reason, there was something in the water in the high school that they all have artistic talent and I have absolutely none. Interesting. So there's maybe some connections there. And I, sorry, I had to ask. <laughs> I was recently in Myrtle Beach um, and I hope nobody thinks I'm picking on Myrtle Beach, but I thought it was really funny that when you got there, it said Myrtle Beach, home of Vanna White. Okay. And that they so I was wondering that made me think I was like, is there some something similar to that? But anyway, I'll let I'll let you I'll let that go. <laughs> Babylon Township had had more. Uh, so North Babylon was part of, of Babylon Township, and that had Amityville Horror, because um, Amityville oh. was part of the township. And uh, the train station in Babylon, I actually don't know if this is still true, but that was the end of the electric line. 
for the Long Island Railroad, and then you had to switch to the to the diesel line. So it was it was famous for that because everyone had to get off the train. So so there was something in the area. Something. Well, and actually, if I could get either maybe a snapshot of childhood or just a recitation of your interest, but say I found you when you were in, I don't know, elementary school or middle school, what type of kid were you? What was life like? What were you into? Fairly geeky, I would say is probably appropriate. I got into computers in in probably the the golden age of the early computers, I guess, probably in the late 1970s, early 80s. Um, so um, it was definitely an interesting time with, uh, you know, uh, an IBM PC weighed about 25 pounds at the time. <laughs> and they were super expensive, but we still had the, you know, the, the computers in my junior high and my high school. And so I was the, I was the guy who was always playing around on those and, and quite honestly, hacking at the age of probably about 14 before that was a, a thing. Interesting. And I feel like maybe that's a little relevant to your, to your current practice, but you're also bringing me back. And this is probably a, you know, a decade later, but I do remember, I think the first computer I had in my house was an Apple IIe, which okay. similarly was not a small machine. I don't think it did very much, <laughs> but my my dad really enjoyed the games that he could play on it. So, you know, thinking about like floppy disks and, yes. <laughs> and things like that. Okay. Then tell me about, about high school. What were your interests? What was that thought process going into college? So uh, I was still very into computers probably at the time, and and I ran track actually. Those were my probably my two biggest activities. I'd say was uh, I was I ran the mile in in high school, and yeah, a, a lot of playing around with computers. A lot of Saturday nights spent with friends, basically hacking computer games. And then as you were applying to college, I think, where did you say you went? Did you say it was Stony Brook for college? Stony Brook. That's right. So what was the process with you deciding to go to Stony Brook and what did you decide to major in? So that's actually really interesting. I wanted, I actually originally wanted to be a doctor and I had a biology teacher in my senior year of high school who was not the easiest teacher to deal with, I would say. And so in the middle of my college applications, I switched from pre-med, I guess, to, to engineering. Um, and I figured, all right, well, engineering seems to be, you know, something I'd be good at. It, it seems interesting. Um, my father was a, uh, a software programmer, so it seemed to be a good fit. And Stony Brook was close. Um, it's a state school for parents. It was it was relatively inexpensive, and so that's that's generally how I wound up there. Yeah, that's often the determinative factor for people. You know, even still, still right now, that's important. You know, and something I've realized I want to ask more about on this podcast, and I, I usually forget is, did you have any interesting part time jobs growing up? Growing up, I mean, like in high school, so much. I mean, I did like a paper route and things like that. I mean, nothing, nothing super exciting or anything like that. I'm probably one of the few people who, who never worked in the food service industry um, or anything like that. My mom was very into some public service activities. And so I was always dragged around doing, doing that sort of stuff. I did have a, a very interesting kind of summer set of jobs in, in college. My high school required typing to graduate. And so I was probably one of the few people back then who act like 17-year-old guys who knew how to type. And so I always wound up with these weird summer positions of like I worked for a, a, um, a drug company, which is you know, kind of similar to a CVS today, but I worked in the back office. I worked for the, for the marketing director. Um, I actually worked for him twice, once for the stationary buyer and once for the, for the food buyer. 
and I was their secretary. Like I sat there and I, I typed memos for them. Um, I was terrible at it. I was a good typist, but I was a terrible secretary. And it was interesting. I, I got a lot of um, interesting views back then from uh, some of the some of the salespeople who would come in and you know try to sell their new products. So I, I really appreciate you for sharing that. I know with you, you know, like you've already alluded to law is a second career, but I've realized I need to ask our lawyers more about that because you never see that on bios. You never see any of the like, like, like you said, you know, secretarial jobs during college or waitress or bartender. And I just think it's important for people to hear that. You know, the lawyers at Foley and large law firm lawyers were people too. Like we've likely done many of the things that students who are looking to apply here or that our colleagues have done. So I appreciate you for indulging me on that question. Sure. Um, now, now tell me more. So what happens after high school, or sorry, after college? And I don't want to like skip through. If there's something else there you want to highlight, please do. But what, what did you do once you graduated? So I, I graduated college. I moved back in with my parents, uh, the whole uh, about 25 miles away that from Stony Brook. Um, and wound up getting a job at a company called Ads, which was a division of NCR and eventually AT&T. And they made old style text terminals, you know, the old green screen, like what you would see in a, you know, a, a bank or something like that. And I was, I was originally hired to um, design a, a diskless workstation, which is now what most people have on their desk, you know, for a virtual terminal. But that act, that project actually got canceled six months after I started at the company, and I wound up doing chip design. And I was there for seven years, wore a lot of hats other than the chip design. I, I sat on the production floor a couple of times um, when we needed people. And we had an FTC tent in the back where we actually did all the testing for emissions, which in uh, the, the job was in Hopog, New York, um, which is also out on Long Island. Freezing cold during some of those tense times, but uh, you know we we plowed through it and. Um, and I have to stop you. Did you say chip design? Like yes, yeah, I was like, a chip designer. Like microchips, like what? Sorry, you have to tell me more about what that is. Yeah, it was microchips. So so yeah. in the in the industry we call them ASICs, but um, basically I was designing the 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 chip that was inside the terminal that drove the screen and the keyboard and all of the communications. Um, and I know I'm sure we'll get more into that, but uh, that was most of my engineering career was in that type of space, just in various different sectors. And yeah, I'm sure we're going to talk more. And I'm just going to keep asking the dumb question to show sure. my, my ignorance here. But when you say chip design, and I, you know, I obviously have some concept of what a microchip is, but is it figuring it out, like out that out so that this thing can work as it needs to in these terminals that you mentioned? Like what, what exactly is the job? So, so it is figuring out what you want it to do um, and then designing circuits that make it do that. Um, and then eventually you're doing it all on, you know, on a computer, right? You're not actually sitting there wiring anything up these days or even back then. Um, but you, you go and you design it all on a computer, you, you, test it to make sure that it works, which is really simulation in a computer environment. And then you send it off to be built and they come back with a chip and then you put it in all your computers or in those cases, terminals. And you mentioned you were with that company for seven years. So, yeah. so what happened next? So what happened next is, I mean, there were a few things that happened. I got, uh, the company got sold. I actually had an offer about a year before it got sold for a company that I had, I had turned down because the company had said that uh, you know there was a big project. It was really supposed to 
essentially save the company and they needed my expertise in order to to do that. And so I stuck around for a year after I had this other offer. That offer wound up going away. Company got sold. I actually answered a an advertisement on Usenet, which would be what most people would understand as like a BBS back then, um, a bulletin board system, for a job here in California for a company called General Instruments, designing some of the, um, the first uh, broadband cable modems. Um, so I was one of the first 50 people to uh, to do that, moved out to California, and it was, uh, it was pretty exciting. I stayed there for just about two years. I left because they had the, the project had, ha- had changed. They decided to, to do some things that just were, wasn't necessarily in my expertise, and so I moved on. That's, that's interesting. So for some of our listeners, yes, there was a time before broadband cable modems. Yes. <laughs> just... <laughs> And, and one of the reasons why I moved on was they had um, the first first project was originally scoped out as it was going to be the cable modems as we understand today. It changed to be you had a traditional telephone modem to send your information back to the internet, and then everything that came to you would be over the cable. And that's when I said, okay, it was it was time to time to switch. Wow, I didn't realize that that was or people were contemplating that or actually did that. Of course, I, I very much remember the time of someone trying to talk on the phone and you couldn't because someone else in your house was on the internet. <laughs> and I remember my friends in, in New York and my old job were saying like, what's on the internet? Nobody, like, there's nothing there. Why do you need to design this? Like, what? this doesn't make sense. What could we possibly use this internet for? That's something that, what was it like academics are using, you know, that normal people will never need that. And it's, I love hearing this though and, and the buildup and just so the listeners know, you know, Steve reached out to me and was like, "Hey, you know, I'd love to talk about, or I'm finally ready, should I say, to talk about about my path." And you you gave me a little bit of an outline of it, and I think it's so important for people to hear that there are also people who've had, frankly, full careers before going to law school. You are not the first Foley lawyer um, that we've had on this show to have have that experience. But at this point, I'm guessing you weren't, was law school at all in the back of your mind during any of this? Or were you just like, I'm an engineer and that's what I'm going to keep doing? I was totally the engineer. Um, you know, I, I had no intention on going to law school. Law school didn't actually wind up happening until... Um, 14 years later after that. Wow. So. Close that gap for me a bit. You know, give me a give us a summary of the the next, you know, few jobs that you were an engineer in, and then of course you explained to us how how does law school make an appearance? Sure. So, um my next job, I after I left that company, I decided to be a consultant for a couple of years. Consulting was consulting for engineering was very very hot at the time, and I wound up doing a consulting job for um, a company called iOmega, which some people may remember is the old zip drives. Um, but I was working on the. They also had a tape backup system, and so I was working on the chip design for that. I was also simultaneously, at least for the last year of that working for another company that was actually, again, in kind of the networking space, they were doing a double modem where it would use two phone lines um, in order to send the information twice as fast. Obviously didn't uh, didn't ever, ever make it that far. Maybe didn't take off, but that sounded like a great idea. If you would have told me that, you know, I don't know how many years ago, 25. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, of course, two phone lines, way better. <laughs> right, exactly, because everyone has two phone lines in their house. That's right. Um, All right, sorry, and, I interrupted you. Keep going. No problem. And, and so that, you know, that started coming to an end and, you know, the, the consulting market started getting a little bit tougher. And so I wound up joining a company called Hyphen, um, which is no longer around, but they were doing uh, network security processors. 
So I was a chip designer for them and, and doing a lot of uh, the cryptographic modules that were, that were in those designs. Um, got to work with some very fantastic, um, incredibly bright people, some of which are, are fairly well known in the security space. And so I was there for, there also for just about seven years. I'll say about half of that time, the company had taken a downturn. This is already, you know, kind of early 2000s, and we had the dot com bust and and everything that went along with that. Um, and about the towards about the last year of that, I had started considering going to law school. I had tried to get another engineering jobs in, in San Diego. The market was was rather tough. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really start thinking about going to law school. And, and you have to tell me why. So what what was the thought if you went to law school because it's interesting, or you'd been exposed to something, or where did where did the thought come from? I had a friend who had gone to law school, and so that was a little bit influential, but in a very different space. And so it just seemed like it was interesting, but a lot of it was really um, I don't know what else to do. Uh, you know, I couldn't, I guess engineering was very tough here in San Diego. Um, and, uh, and I owned a house. I didn't necessarily want to sell it. I didn't want to move. Um, and so I said, all right, well, what else could I possibly do? Yeah, law school seems like a good idea. Sure. I'll reach, I'll retool myself a little bit. So that ple- that seed is planted. Although I know you didn't go quite then in the early two thousands, it looks like you kept working in engineering for a bit. Yeah. So what happened was um, it was actually this time in 2006, um, this time of the year in 2006. And I was ready to like, okay, I'm going to get all my stuff together because I had been out of school for a couple of years. And in between this whole thing, while I was working at one of those earlier jobs, I had done my master's part-time as well out here at UCSD. And I didn't know where any of my stuff was, transcripts or anything like that. I had to find all of that stuff. Um, in order to apply for the LSAT. Um, so my plan was, all right, 4th of July weekend, I'm going to get all my stuff together. I'm going to find all this stuff. I'm going to fill out the LSAT form and I'm going to I'm going to start all this application process, right? They came in the Wednesday before 4th of July and said, pack your stuff, get out. We're closing this office. We're done. Okay. So that, that changed a lot Change of things. Change of plans. Change of yep. plans, yeah. Um, I wound up meeting with a bunch of folks at Qualcomm the next day. Um, had my interview July 5th. I think I had my offer July 7th and I started. Um, and I was um, replacing a, an open position that they didn't have anyone to fill for almost a year as the hardware security lead for the company. Um, so I started at Qualcomm. I'm like, this is great. This is fantastic. Yeah, I can stay here for the rest of my life. This is, this is perfect. And what is hardware also, what is hardware security? I'm sorry, because I realize you have a cybersecurity practice, related practice now. And I think a lot of us know what cybersecurity is, but when you put the hardware in front of it, I'm not quite sure that I know exactly what that is. Sure. So I was doing a lot of the the type of stuff that I was doing at Hyphen, which is probably why I was such a good fit for for Qualcomm. But I was doing the security architecture and the and the cryptographic engines and and all of that stuff for the mobile device space. Um, so I was working on some of the things that allow you to stream Netflix um, securely, right? So Netflix doesn't get upset that you can copy all of the information. Um, copy the video, you know, all of the encryption that goes on in, you know, your current phone. Um, I was doing a lot of that stuff. Um, it was a complicated, uh, architecture. I won't get into a lot of details, 
Yeah, of course not. Please don't. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they had a lot going on in one device, as you would expect in you know a, a modern you know cell phone device. Yeah. It does a lot, and so that had a, a complicated security architecture that had to go along with it to make sure that one thing couldn't screw with another thing. Oh, thanks for elaborating on that. So this is um, not particularly relevant, but it's probably the most relevant for me to ever say it on the podcast. But <laughs> I'm a I'm a member of a cybersecurity mastermind group. Okay. Um, which is perhaps the most random thing for a, a director of diversity and inclusion to be a member of, but actually as an outgrowth of starting this podcast, I reached out to some people to get advice on starting a podcast. I was connected to somebody who has a top security podcast, or it's called Hacker Valley podcast on iTunes, and they invited me to their mastermind, and I said yes. So I have this weird, just from listening to conversations, the tiniest comprehension of that world, like teeny tiny, but more than I would have, say, a year ago. And I don't know. Maybe it'll come up more later when we speak, but just thought I'd throw that in. So I'm, Steve, I'm, I'm practically an expert. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just it's, kidding, but sorry. It's I, a fascinating I world. Exactly. Keep keep going though. Keep going. Yeah. So about a year and a half, two years into working at Qualcomm, I got a call from a VP. Wouldn't tell me what it was about, but just that I had to come to this meeting. I go to the meeting and they say, look, we're, we're thinking about buying this cybersecurity company. You're the hardware security lead. We're going to take you off of all your projects for the next two months. And you're going to evaluate their patent portfolio and you know, sit, work with some of our lawyers and um, and tell us what you think. The other weird thing about that was, is we were actually considering using that same cybersecurity company's intellectual property in one of my designs. So I was simultaneously working on trying to cut out a deal for licensing the technology while I'm looking at buying them and they don't know either of those. Right? So I, I start looking at these patents. I've never really looked at a patent before at that point. I'm working very closely with the lawyers and particularly one of the um, the VP of legal. And I ran into him, uh, you know, end in the day one day. And, and he said, hey, you seem to like this. Have you ever thought about going to law school? I said, yeah, well, you know, I kind of thought about it a couple of years ago. He goes, yeah, hey, you know, you should try it out. And so I did. <laughs> Not exactly an entirely that. planned uh, career path, but um, somewhat random. Well, but one thing leads to another in her career. So I think that's great. And I, I, as I said before, I appreciate you you know, laying that out because I, it sounds to me like there's a number of experiences that you had in your prior life as an engineer that are certainly relevant in what you do now. Um, so I have to get you to give me some of your reflections on the law school experiences. You know, you'd been out of school for a while, although you had picked up that master's along the way. Mm -hmm. What was that transition to law school like for you? It was shocking, <laughs> to say the least. There had a, I mean, I had finished my master's in 2000. I had done it part-time. I had, I had taken off a little bit in between or during it. But I mean, it was. I started law school in 2009. I had finished my master's in 2000. There was nine years in between. And the world of education had changed significantly then. Nobody had a laptop in 2000. I mean, a laptop weighed 15 pounds. It was a luggable. Um, you know, everybody had a laptop in, in law school. Um, so one of the first shocks was the idea of I'm not bringing a, a, you know, a spiral notebook with me, uh, to take notes. I've got to learn how to take notes on a computer. I've never done this before. So that was one, you know, kind of huge shock. Well, and I'm, I'm laughing because, so I went to, I went to law school, I guess a couple of years. I graduated actually the year before you started. And I can't remember if I did this, but I have this recollection of showing up to a couple of classes with a notebook in hand. 
And then looking around the room and being like, oh my gosh, I should bring my laptop. Like I owned a laptop, but it didn't occur to me to bring it, which once again, to the law students listening might sound like the most outlandish, foolish thing for anyone to think. But yes, there was a time where we also were transitioning where like you you had the had the computer, but you didn't necessarily think to bring it until you saw that literally all your classmates had. Yes. I guess if you were me. Yes. That that was that was a huge shock. That was the first huge shock. This the second kind of huge shock along the same way was Facebook happened in between. <laughs> And, you know, the, the most distracting thing you had when I did my master's was, uh, you know, maybe somebody passing notes or having a cough or something, you know, but everyone was on Facebook when I started law school. And so I had to move to the front of the class. I was one of those people who had to be in the front row, not because like I, you know, wanted to be some teacher's pet or anything like that was because I didn't want to see everybody else's screen. It, it was <laughs> just true. so distracting to me that I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. Sorry, you were bringing me back. There are definitely moments in law school where you would, I mean, I don't know if it was literal instant messenger, but you know, texting friends or messaging friends and you would, and you'd be like, do you see three rows up? So-and-so is just watching a movie. Like you would talk about what, what people were doing. Um, that's all, That's really, really funny. And then also, where did you go to law school? Uh, so I went to law school at University of San Diego here in, here in town because I did law school part-time. Um, I was still a full-time employee at Qualcomm the the entire period of that. And then the you know the other big shock for me with law school was um, there were people in my in my first year classes who were not born when I graduated high school. So that was a little bit of a gender gap. It was uh, it was a little bit of of trying to get used to some of those things. With being in a part-time program, did you feel like there were more students that were a bit older? Because I think that's right. The, the other people who've been on this show from Foley who attended law school after you know doing something else, whether it been five years, 10 years, 15 years, I think um, for many people, particularly when you go full-time, you're like, you just feel a lot older than m many of the, the students who went straight through. Yeah, mo most of my most of my part time program, and we did have classes with a lot of the full time programs, so um, it was a, it was a little bit mixed. Um, but yeah, most of my most of my part time colleagues were were you know probably in their thir late thirties, early forties. Um, you know, I think there were maybe one or two who were who were still in their twenties. Yeah. Yeah, that's in that's interesting. So, how was it adjusting academically to the to the work, like the type of reading and summer, all of that? Was that fine? Did it take some adjustment? It took adjustment. Um, I will say, um, the 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 book getting to maybe was a complete disaster for me. <laughs> I liked that book. It actually really helped me. <laughs> it, it did not help me at all. Um, I I had my first criminal law uh, midterm, and I bombed it. I bombed it horribly, like bottom 25% of the class. And I was very fortunate. We had a, a guidance counselor or, or career advisor. I don't know what the, what the term would be, academic advisor, I guess, who, who was a part-time student herself. And I went to her office, like just about in tears, like I'm going to bomb out of law school. Like, this is it. And she said, no, 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 look, I, I've dealt with a lot of engineers. I've had a lot of people come through the program from Qualcomm you think differently and you have to study differently. And when she explained it to me, it's totally true. When you, you know, engineering books, you have a couple of paragraphs in a formula, a couple of paragraphs in another formula. And then in the back of the chapter, there's a bunch of practice questions and you go and you plug and chug into the formula and like you figure it out, right? That's how you learn. Um, you don't learn by memorizing. 
which is you know kind of how a lot of law students try to try to do it. She said, look, you, you can't follow the same thing that everyone else is telling you, and this is how you study, and especially kind of getting to maybe in those things. You need to figure out how to like how to apply how you learned in, in engineering to law school. So try like the E&E books and the, um, the flashcards, the manual flashcards and those things and see how that goes. And that was a complete lifesaver for me for the rest of my, my law school career. So much better. You see me nodding my head as you said that. Definitely had conversations before with people where we talk about, you have to figure out in law school how you learn. But I love that you were speaking directly to how you know, not to generalize, but typically how engineers learn or how those who are more, I don't even know if like scientific or technically minded may be the right way to describe it. And I just, I really appreciate you elaborating on that because if you try to do what everyone else is doing and you, you're used to other things, it really may not go well for you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, we learn by doing. I mean, that's, yes. And, and that's what I had to do in, in law school, which is, you know, not the same way that a bunch of other people learned. Well, and it sounds like you were able to make that adjustment. You know, you figure it out. You know, you you know, you definitely didn't bomb out of the rest of law school. You know, we know we know that. So, how does um, it's a couple of questions? One is how does Foley come onto the scene? And also, while in law school, doing this part time, did you already have that thought that you know, when I graduate, I want to go on to do something in the intellectual property, privacy, cybersecurity space? Or yeah, tell me about both those things. Yeah, so definitely was was interested in doing the the privacy and and cybersecurity type um, of a practice. It was still kind of burgeoning back then. It, it wasn't as of as big of a field as it may be today. I wound up at Foley because um, I met a, a former partner at Foley on an on campus event that I weaseled my way into. Um, it was supposed to be ten people, and I was number eleven. Um, and I and I begged the secretary to let me in, um, and and so I wound up getting in, and and um, I spoke to him for a little bit after after the event. Uh, he was the the chair of the um, the privacy practice at Foley at the time. Um, that was my first year of law school. Um, kept in touch with him. Wound up losing touch with him. Got back in touch with him. Um, it got to be my my third year of law school because part time is four years instead of three. Um, got to be my the beginning of my third year of law school, and I said, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna meet up with him. I went out to lunch. Um, I brought my resume, and I said, okay, you know, I'm I'm just gonna be his his kind of research junkie for the for the summer, right? Because I'm a full time employee at Qualcomm, and I don't really have very many options here. Um, Gave him my resume, you know, talked to him a little bit about, you know, what I'd be interested in doing. Um, two, three hours later, he called me up and said, um, well, how about a summer associate position? You know, we can we can open up a spot for you. So, okay. Um, you know, how about you come in for an interview in a couple of days? I'm really curious as to how being a summer associate worked with you, presumably still being at Qualcomm. How did, it how was- were you able to do that? It was weird. So um, at, by the time this happened, I was actually already in a group called Government Technologies at Qualcomm. Um, so we were we were a government contractor. I had top secret, sensitive, compartmentalized information. I worked in a classified environment. Um, I was able to get Qualcomm to give me a change of status to part time, uh, where I would owe them five hours a week, um, and that was it. And that's the way we would do it for the summer. Um, and so I was able to basically do what is essentially a full-time summer associate program at Foley. 
because I still owed him five hours and because of my, my role in the, in the whole situation with being, um, like I said, the, the hardware security lead on the commercial side of the company, um, I would get calls in the morning of, um, hey, can you come in and do this presentation? I was like, okay, you know, what's, what's the presentation about? Well, we can't tell you because it's not a secure phone. Um, well, who's the presentation with? Well, we can't tell you because it's not a secure phone. That's why I'd walk into the, you know, to the classified environment, and there were clearly people who were um, high up, high up government and military uh, entities there. And, and I would do my presentation mostly off the cuff because I didn't know what it was about ahead of time. Um, and then I'd come back to Foley in the, for the rest of the day in the afternoon. You'd come back and get asked to do some research. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'd come back and then I'd, you know, write a brief. You know, just, it's just a normal thing. Oh my gosh. What an interesting dynamic. But also, sorry, I say this all the time on all the podcasts because and I'm always like, I appreciate, I appreciate, I appreciate. But truly, I appreciate you detailing that because um there's a number of things. And as you can imagine, in my role at Foley as Director of Diversity and Inclusion, I just think it's so important for people to talk about anything other than what is sort of the stereotypical or the prototypical either path or belief that we think the path is. And one of those, whether it be going to law school as a second career, but also attending law school part-time and balancing the, op the opportunities that you know you want to have, but while you're also juggling other life stuff, which for you happened to be also be, um, you know, super high level government top secret, you know, whatever it was at the time. But but it's 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 not it's not easy, and it's great that Qualcomm was able to have that arrangement for you. But I think it can be so hard because it's great to get a summer associate position, but when you're balancing, you know, a full time job that many people have, that's really really tough. And and it was great that Foley let me do it too, right? Because I mean, we'd disappear for three, four hours, you know, once a week, and and they were okay with it. They they understood the the situation. So, oh my gosh. Okay, well, let's transition to you. So you graduate from law school. You know, you join join Foley. I don't know if there's anything to highlight within that transition, but we have to get to your practice because I've been fortunate to get more um, Foley attorneys from the IP group on the podcast. But right now, the practice groups we've covered have been you know, litigation, prosecution, and trademark, copyright, and advertising. So your particular practice area expertise, I don't think has been really represented on the show. So I would love to hear, I want to hear a bit about transitioning to being an actual lawyer, and then we have to dig into what your practice is and what you do. Okay. Um, so the, the transition was was also kind of interesting because the the partner who recruited me um, had left the firm between my summer associate position and starting and taking the bar. Um, so that was a little bit of a, uh, an interesting wrinkle in things. Um, I actually showed up to Foley my first day, not knowing what my job was going to be. Um, and in fact, I was in the, um, they had moved me from the practice I was, I was going to be in to the electronics patent prosecution practice. Um, because they said, hey, you're an engineer, you've got a, a bachelor's, you've got a master's, you you should be great at this. And I said, I have no interest in doing this whatsoever. Thank you. Um, I can tell you in the in the eight years that I've been at Foley, I have probably done about 15 hours of patent prosecution. That's it. Um, I, I reached out to a number of the partners who were doing the type of work that I was interested in. Um, which of course was the privacy and cybersecurity stuff. It had um, it was a lot smaller at the time because this this partner had left, um, and so um, there was a lot of interest in rebuilding it. And so I got to um, be involved in that. 
eventually moved into the practice group that I was that I'm in now, which is um, the technology transactions and outsourcing group, which is where a lot of our privacy and cybersecurity counseling activities go. And that was after my my first year at the at the firm, and it's um, it's been interesting since then. Uh, most of my practice is counseling on privacy laws. Um, which is rapidly changing. We have a new law in California um, that got passed in 2018. Um, there is now a ballot initiative that got passed last November that's going to replace that law. Um, there's a European law called GDPR, um, which came into effect also in 2018. It got passed in 2016. Um, and right now, there's about 20-something states that are looking at passing laws that are similar to, to California. Um, so it's a very rapidly evolving, rapidly changing um, area of the law that we advise our clients on, on you know, how to, how to comply with, hopefully with all of them at the same time, but sometimes that's realistically not possible and you just kind of either do the best that you can or you do different things in different states or different jurisdictions. Um, the cybersecurity aspect of it is the same. Most of these privacy laws have have an idea of reasonable security practices. And so we get to go in and, and help our clients figure out, first of all, what is a reasonable security practice given the type of information that they're collecting um, and it's not just personal information, I should say, it's also their intellectual property, right? That's, that may very well be their most valuable thing that they, that they want to protect. Um, and so we help them develop information security policies and, and um, practices in order to, to comply with that. With my engineering background, that's one of the, I think, advantages that, that I have is I can go and I can speak to their, their CTO or I can speak to their CISO, uh, which is the chief technology officer or chief information security officer. Um, and talk technology with them, right? And say, okay, well, here's the balance. You know, can you do this? You know, what what can we what can we work out? And then we help them, um, you know, document it and implement it. I love so many aspects of what you just described because, well, one, a few of those things you named, you know, apply to my day to day work at Foley. You know, things like GDPR and also various data security around diversity and inclusion related information sure. are things that that it's you know by no means something that I have to be expert on. But I think for a lot of people in your day to day you actually touch on these issues, whether, you know, obviously not, most people listening aren't directors of diversity and inclusion, but when you're working with clients, I think it's important, one, to be able to know when you need to bring in the privacy and the data security experts. I also think your explanation of, you know, overall, you're helping our clients um, stay in compliance with, you know, a lot of ever-changing or frequently changing, should I say, say laws. And then, of course, as you also mentioned, that cybersecurity aspect as well. So how does that look for you on the day-to-day? -day? I'm going to ask that question that the law student certainly asks you if they're interviewing you. It's, what does your day look like? What are what are you working on? But And I, and I get the overall, but is a, a lot of client counseling or do you get clients also reaching out or you guys get brought in because there's maybe been some sort of incident or, or breach? All of the above. I really don't have a typical day, which which I kind of like. You know, I mean, it, it can be interesting sometimes where I, th I think I'm going in and I'm going to work on, you know, one particular thing and I get a call five minutes after I'm, I'm sitting down and all of a sudden I'm working on something else for the rest of the day. It, it happens. But I could be working on a privacy policy, a terms of use, an information security policy. Um, there's, a, there's a required, uh, basically, contract um, when you're processing between a, a company and their vendor. Um, under GDPR, we do a, a fair amount of those. 
And then there is the data breach stuff. I've got a couple of data breaches I'm working on right now. My team has has probably 10 of them going on right now. Um, and so we do get brought in for that and assisting with the investigation and what the legal requirements are once we figure out what's, you know, what's been accessed and then um, helping them comply with that. And I'm going to ask you, it's sort of a big question, but we'll see how succinctly sure. you can summarize this in our last, oh, I don't know, five or so minutes together. But how did you learn this practice area? Just just given that things are changing so much, you know, reflecting on your first few years, and then of course that eventual transition to senior counsel. So yes, you had exposure to the to the industry in many ways, but how did you develop your expertise? Wow, that's that's actually probably a pretty a tough question. question. It, how, it do you, is. how do you is it just working with partners day in day out and getting exposed to new things? A, a lot of it has been, and and because as I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of the the privacy um, laws have been changing under our feet. Some of it is working with the partner to both try to figure it out together. I do have a number of certifications, which which does help. I have the um, Certified Information Privacy Professional. Um, I have the US and, and the European certificates for that. I also have a Certified Information Privacy Manager. So there are training opportunities, I guess, that, um, you know, that help jumpstart it. But it, it's kind of back to, you know, how I got past law school, which is you learn by doing. And so, um, you know, having that a kind of very collaborative relationship with my colleagues, whether it's a partner or other senior counsel or associate and saying, okay, like, let's try to figure it out here and come up with the best solution as, uh, is really the way to kind of learn that practice. Well, and one of the reasons I like to ask that question, even though I know it's an enormous question that no one can answer in a few seconds is I think it's important for junior lawyers and for law students to hear that that the people that you will work with in these firms, the people who seem like they they just know everything, they learned because they they did the work over many, many years. And yes, law school is great and it has equipped you to think a certain way, but generally speaking for almost everybody, when you join a firm out of law school, you now need to go learn your practice area. And as you just said, Steve, you learn by doing. So I just hope that makes somebody feel better when they walk in the door and don't know exactly what's being asked of them. That's really where I think most attorneys started, regardless of the practice area, even in super cool ones that involve the word cybersecurity and, and hacking and privacy. <laughs> Same thing. Well, as we wind down, I'm going to ask my last few questions, which is one, is there anything you've wanted to speak about or highlight that you haven't had the opportunity to? And then two, that ever important question of, What's your advice to people? What's your advice to either that law student or someone early in their career about being a lawyer? So I think for the first one, um, you know, for, for new uh, attorneys, it is very important to get mentored, as we were just talking about, and, and um, you know, kind of learning your practice and realizing that, you know, hey, you have a bit to learn. As you get more senior and more advanced in, as, as an attorney, you got to look at it the opposite. Um, you know, there's a lot of the job, and I take that very seriously, of of mentoring the junior associates and kind of being that resource um, and knowing not to, you know, it may be obvious to me after you know so many years of practice, but it may not be obvious to a first year associate, and you have to kind of um, you know realize that it's not, understand that it's not, and and be able to work with them to to grow their capabilities so that they're where you are and you know, seven, eight, nine years, whatever it is. Um, for for law students, um, I think it's important to to 
find a practice area that you really like. Um, uh, you know, certainly over my engineering career, there were there were days that I woke up going, God, I hate this. I don't want to get out of bed. Um, and you don't want that. Uh, as a lawyer, you really don't want that. Um, if you don't like the practice area that you're in, find another one. Um, hopefully you figure that out in law school. That's perfect if you if you can. Um, but I do know a lot of people who you know, started off in law school saying, okay, I want to, I want to help the world. I want to be a litigator. I want to, I want to help, you know, uh, people and, you know, they're doing corporate law now because, you know, once they actually started getting through law school, they decided something else was, you know, the right path for them. You see me nodding a lot. And I think that's so important. A lot of our lawyers say this, you know, but the thing is you can't find practice areas that you really like, that you really enjoy. Maybe that you sort of, sort of love, which is, I mean, we're, if we can even say that's that, great, yeah. but also, you know, at, at Foley, certainly, but at a lot of these large firms, we want to keep our people and we will work with people to get them into a practice group that they really enjoy. It's not necessarily something that, you know, due to, you know, staffing needs and everything that we can do overnight. But if you find yourself in your career, just, you know, thinking that something would resonate with you more, certainly raise that. So I, re I really appreciate you for raising that, that point, Steve. And then the final, but maybe most important question, if someone listening wants to reach out to you, ask you, ask you questions, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and email you? Absolutely. Not a problem at all. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Steve. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Steve. I am delighted to update his episode to share that as of February 2022, Steve joined the partnership at Foley & Lardner. Congratulations, Steve. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 